Welcome Sunset, my name is Steve Marshman, and just to set the record straight, there's nothing I could teach Nate about the game of golf. Zero. He is a fabulous golfer, uh, and I am not. Uh, simple. But like I said, my name is Steve Marshman. I'm one of the leaders here. And we're in a series called Words to the Wise, which the screen is working, and we hope it continues to work for the rest of the time. We'll find out. But remember from Jose's teaching that wisdom is skillful living. It's just not head knowledge. It's a way of life. It's a way of living. It's skillful living. The Bible tells us to live by faith. And that's the word we're going to talk about today, faith, which I know some of you want, oh, faith, that's a mysterious word. This is going to be hard. I'm going to try to make it simple and easy. Uh, and if the slides work, it will be simple and easy. <laughs> but the, the Bible tells us to live by faith, to walk by faith. And the Bible says the righteous will live by faith. Hopefully that's you and me today. Uh, but how do we walk by faith? That's what we're going to dig into. And at some point in the future here, in a few minutes, I'm going to define faith and help you out with that if it's a mysterious word. But this could be a big topic. It could be 10 weeks long. But we're going to squeeze it into one message for now and just do an overview. So with that, we better start with praying. Father, thank you for this day. I thank you for the people today here that have taken their time out of their day to come to worship you. There's nothing better we could do with our time at this moment than to come and worship you and give you the glory and the honor and the praise that you deserve. Holy Spirit, we ask you to be our teacher today, to speak through me, fill your people up with an understanding of faith that moves them to action. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the way I'm gonna start is we're gonna go rapid fire strolling through four passages of Matthew. So if you have our Bibles, turn to chapter eight of Matthew, Matthew chapter eight. And as we read through these short little stories, uh, we're gonna hear from Jesus, the wisest man who ever lived, by the way. We're gonna hear from Jesus and the common denominator of these stories is the word faith, specifically little faith versus great faith. Matthew chapter eight, beginning in verse five is our first story. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion, which is a Roman soldier, by the way, uh, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. Jesus said to him, shall I come and heal him? The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with, with uh, soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. And that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed and, to the, and said to those following him, truly, I tell you, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. In this first story, we see that the centurion who's not even Jewish, he's a Roman soldier, the centurion understands the power and authority of Jesus Christ. The centurion gets it. Now in the first century, a faithful Jew was marked by two things. One, a dedication to the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. And two, hope in the Messiah, hope in the coming Messiah. Interestingly, the Messiah has come in the form of Jesus, but it wasn't what the Jews were expecting, the way he came. But 
based on what this centurion saw, he gets that Jesus has power and authority. And Jesus says, if you recognize my power and authority, you have great faith. Okay, next little story. Just go down to verse 23, same chapter, Matthew 8, 23. Then he, Jesus, got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Suddenly, a furious storm came up on the lake so that the waves swept over the boat. But Jesus was sleeping. Evidently, one of Jesus' qualities is a really good deep sleeper because the sleep through that has got to be amazing. The disciples went and woke him saying, Lord, save us. We're going to drown. And Jesus replied, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the waves, and it was completely calm. Then the men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? Even the winds and waves obey him. What kind of man is this that has power and authority over the wind and the waves? See, here in this early gospel story, the disciples didn't get what the centurion got. The disciples missed the fact that Jesus has all power and all authority on heaven and earth, even over the wind and the waves. Okay, another story. We're going to skip over to chapter 14. We're going to be back on the lake again. I don't know if you've ever been to the Sea of Galilee, but if you ever get a chance to go there, go there. It's an absolutely beautiful, beautiful lake. Uh, But it gets stormy. Evidently. Chapter 14 of Matthew, starting in verse 25. Very, very famous story, so don't tune me out. Uh, Listen to these words as we read them, because it's the famous Jesus walks on water story. Matthew 14, verse 25. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I. Don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Now let me pause there. The passage doesn't say that this is great faith. But what do you think? Is that great faith or little faith? Lord, if it's you, tell me to come. and I'm going to walk on water out to you. I think we can all agree that that is great faith at that moment. Come, Jesus says. Then Peter got out of the boat, walked on the water, and came toward Jesus. But, but... When he saw the wind, he was afraid and he began to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Verse 31, immediately Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, why did you doubt? I love this story because it shows amazing great faith followed by doubts and little faith. And the reason why I love that is because it reminds me that my faith and your faith, it comes and it goes. It just does. It's the reality of the human condition. And what I need to realize is that when I have doubts, I need to subject them to the truth. I need to expose my doubts to the truth. I need to learn to doubt my doubts with facts and evidence. Here's some facts and evidence that we could all go to the bank with, so to speak. Even atheists believe these following facts. First one, Jesus was a real person. He lived in the first century and he performed many signs and wonders. Everybody that has any kind of education or scholarly ability believes that. Second thing, Jesus was sentenced to death by crucifixion. Historical fact. 
can't disagree with that. <clears throat> Excuse me, the th uh, third one, the reason Jesus was executed. This is an important one. Why was Jesus executed? Why was he crucified? Because he claimed to be the Messiah. And to the Jews, if you claim to be the Messiah and you're not the Messiah, that's blasphemy and they, you get killed. Now we know that in our opinion, Jesus is the Messiah, but there's nobody that disagrees with the fact that the reason Jesus was crucified is because he claimed to be Messiah. Fourth fact, absolute no doubt, he was buried. He actually died. His body died and they put him in the tomb. There was no life left in his body. Nobody disagrees with that fact. Even the atheists don't disagree with that fact. But here's where it gets interesting. Really interesting, the resurrection. The resurrection is what separates believers and unbelievers. Now, in my opinion, my opinion, the evidence for the resurrection is overwhelming. To believe that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, you have to believe the most giant conspiracy theory of epic proportion. You just do. You have to believe that it was a hallucination. You have to believe that it's just all of legend. But there's so much evidence that Jesus actually rose from the dead. I believe it with all my heart and soul. But I don't want you to take my word for it. I sent an email out to the elders in Passion and said, I'm going to talk about this. And I think we need to give people some resources. So back out at the, at the welcome desk, there's a half sheet of paper half sheet of paper, so it'll be like this, I think. I think they cut them for you. And it's a list of seven books. If you have doubts about the resurrection of Jesus, I would encourage you to get this piece of paper and look up these books. We put quite a list on here. There's seven, and there's some old ones. There's some new ones. There's some easy-to-read ones. There's some hard-to-read ones because they're written by really smart scholars. But just to give a quick idea what they are, the reason for God, the case for Easter, who is Jesus, mere Christianity, the historical reliability of the Gospels, more of the carpenter, and a book by Randy Alcord called Heaven, which I'll talk about in a second. So don't take my word for it. Search the truth, Christian Believer, unbeliever, go find it out. Go look. Lots of evidence out there. Okay, one more short story. Chapter 15, one, one more over. And this one's a fascinating one to me because it's a story of a Canaanite woman. Again, not a Jewish person. We don't even know her name. But key to this story is that she comes to Jesus on behalf of her demon-possessed daughter. And she's, like I said, not an Israelite. She's, she's Jewish. She's not a Gentile. So we'll pick up the story, Matthew 15, verse 25. The woman came and knelt before him, Jesus, and said, Lord, help me. By the way, if you're having struggle with how to pray, that's a great, way, great place to start, right? Lord, help me. Lord, save me. We've heard those words already today. And those are good prayers. Verse 26, Jesus replied, something very mysterious to us. It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Let me pause there. What's going on there? Jesus is giving this woman an illustration. And in this illustration, the children represent the Jewish folks and the dogs represent the Gentiles. Now for us, we don't get that, but she did, because you can tell by her answer in verse 27, she understood what Jesus was illustrating because she said, yes, it is, Lord. Even the dogs, the Gentiles, which she was one, eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. By saying that, she's saying, I recognize the power and authority of Jesus. 
Jesus said to her, verse 28, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted and her daughter was healed at the moment. So in all these stories, we get this same basic picture that faith is connected to the power and the authority of Jesus. It's just the way faith goes. If you're not understanding or connected to the power and authority of Jesus, you're not going to have great faith. Now, when we read these stories, there's something in us that says, I want to be like the centurion. I want to be like the Canaanite woman. I want to have great faith, don't you? I mean, don't, isn't that the way you just feel like, I, I want to have faith, right? No one's saying, oh, I want to be like the little faith, right? <laughs> no one wants that. We want to be like Peter when he walked on water. We don't want to be like Peter when he sank. That's just the way it rolls. So to answer some of these questions about faith, we're going to turn to the book of Hebrews, to the right in your Bible. It's about in the middle of the New Testament. If you get to a bunch of books that start with T, keep going. You're almost there. Um, but Hebrews chapter 11 is where we're going to go. And on your way there, while you're looking for Hebrews 11, the first thing I want to do, and I promise you I would define this word faith because it's used all sorts of ways in our culture. But good one-word synonyms for the word faith are belief and or trust. Belief or trust. And here's a simple definition. Faith is a strong belief or trust in someone or something. And now as we're going to find out if the slides are still working. Faith, they are, awesome. Faith is a strong belief or trust in someone or something. And if we apply that definition to the context of Jesus, we can say faith is strongly trusting in the power and authority of Jesus. See, some of us think that Faith is a feeling. Well, faith is often accompanied by feelings, but it's not just a feeling. And some of us think that faith is an emotion. Well, it's not just an emotion, but it is often accompanied by, by emotions. Key words in this definition are strong and in. Faith is strong. It's just not kind of haphazard. And in, the object of our faith is absolutely critical. The object of our faith is Jesus Christ. So that's a good working definition of faith. And with that definition, now we're going to turn to a description of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. So if there, we're going to look at verse 1. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 1. This kind of reads like a definition, but it's actually a description. The whole chapter is a description of faith. Hebrews 11, verse 1. Now, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. You see, biblical faith includes confidence in the hope God has given us and assurance about things that we can't necessarily see or touch. And as soon as we read that and hear that, some of you are thinking, oh, he's talking about blind faith. So because some of us think that, and I do sometimes too, we got to go chase a squirrel. You guys okay with chasing a squirrel? We got two squirrels today. This is squirrel number one. The first squirrel here is about blind faith. So let me, let me tackle that and say simply, the Bible does not call for us to have blind faith. Just the opposite. The Bible calls us to have faith based on the signs and wonders 
that God has given us based on the facts of Jesus, based on the evidence of Jesus. That's why we're giving you some resources. We're not called to have a blind faith. Actually, what the Bible says is this. The Bible does not call us to have blind faith, but faith like a blind man. Where does that come from? You don't need to turn there, but in Mark chapter 10, there's a story of a blind, named, a blind man named Bartimaeus. It's actually one of my favorite stories in the Bible because it's dirt simple and I like dirt simple things. Bartimaeus was a blind man. By this time in, in Jesus's life, his reputation had preceded him. He's been healing all sorts of people, helping all sorts of people. Bartimaeus certainly knew about Jesus. And Jesus was walking by where Bartimaeus was. Bartimaeus cries out to Jesus and says, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And this is what I like about this story. The, the question Jesus asks Bartimaeus, he says, what do you want me to do for you? Now, if there wasn't a, a bigger giant duh moment in the Bible, I don't know what it is, right? I mean, here's a blind guy, he can't see. Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. What do you want me to do for you? I'm going to get you Chick-fil-A, fries. I mean, I, I can do whatever you want. What do you want? Jesus is testing him, which is often what Jesus does. And Bartimaeus passes in flying colors because his answer was simple. He said, I want to see. I want to see. And Jesus responds, your faith has healed you. So that's the so-called blind faith. It's not blind faith. It's faith of a blind man. Okay, that squirrel is dead. Um, back to chapter 11 of Hebrews. Uh, let's read verse 1 and 2 again. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. This is what the ancients were commended for. Now middle schoolers and high schools, ancients, that's not your mom and dad. Although I think it's a really cool name. If, if my kids called me the ancient, I'd be actually okay with it. Uh, but the ancients are talking about the Old Testament saints. And what follows here as we go through, the, and we're not going to go through the whole chapter verse by verse. What follows here are stories about Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah. And then skip down to verse 13. In the middle of this long list of ancients, the Old Testament saints, is verse 13. Which I want to dig into just a little bit here. All these people in verse 13, all these people, the Old Testament ancients, were still living by faith when they died. They were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. These folks listed in, in Hebrews 11 did not receive the things promised. They lived before the promised Messiah and before the promised new heaven and new earth that we know about from the book of Revelation. But they had faith and they saw the promises and welcomed them from a distance. Okay, it's time to chase another squirrel. Squirrel number two today. One of the most common questions I get asked, both by Christians and non-Christians, is, how do people in the Old Testament get saved? Because they lived before Jesus. How do old people in the Old Testament join the family of God, given that they lived before the Messiah? How does that work? Well, here's a statement that all of us should pretty much memorize because it's full of scriptural truths. Here's the statement. We are saved by grace through faith 
in Jesus Christ. We are saved by faith. I'm sorry, we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And I want to peel the onion back on that just a couple layers because this is important. You could add to that, we are saved by grace alone through faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. So how does that work? We're saved by grace alone. It's God's grace that saves us. We can't rescue ourselves, friends. We're too messed up. There is nothing besides the grace of God that gets us out of our sin problem. It takes God's grace to initiate the rescue plan. And fortunately, he did it. Secondly, we're saved through faith alone. Trust, belief alone, not works. You can't earn your way into God's grace. Can't be done. We're not good enough. It's an impossible task. And then third, in Jesus Christ alone. There's no other way to heaven but through Jesus. It's only in Christ alone. And that's where this question comes from. Well, if it's in Jesus alone and the Old Testament people live before Jesus, how do they get saved? That's where that question comes from. And here's the answer. They get saved the exact same way you and I do, by faith. The only difference is that their faith is forward-looking to Jesus and our faith is rearward-looking to Jesus. By faith, they looked at the future promise that they have not received yet, but by faith, the Messiah promised in the Old Testament, by faith, they receive and are saved. But it's the same grace, the same faith, and the same Messiah. We just happen to know more about him and that his name is Jesus. Do you get that? I hope. Okay, so we can call that squirrel dead too. Okay, that squirrel's dead. All right, moving back on. Back to Hebrews 11. After verse 13, we go down and look at verse 16. We look about these Old Testament uh, saints. And one of the things the writer of Hebrews says is, they were looking for a better country, a heavenly one. And that's where we have some similarities with these Old Testament folks. See, they lived before Messiah. We live after Jesus' first coming. But we all live before his second coming and his second coming ushers in the new heaven and the new earth. Well, what follows that is more demonstrations of faith. And it's a long list. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, and the prophets. You might want to read this this afternoon because it's pretty, pretty encouraging. And then chapter 11 and concludes with verse 39. Swing down to verse 39 with me because this is where we're going to jump off from to our next big point. Hebrews 11, verse 39. These, all these ancients, the Old Testament saints, that whole long list of folks, these were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised since God had planned something better for us so that only together with us they would be made perfect. Isn't that intriguing? Isn't that potentially encouraging once we understand what that means? Something is being alluded to here. Something in the future is going to be perfect. And we are going to be made perfect in that perfection. What's being talked about here is the new heaven. Not the current heaven, but the new heaven. Now that phrase probably just confused a bunch of you. And it used to me, me too. I want to tell you a personal story about my personal life. And hopefully this will help you guys a little bit. 
But back in about the year 2000, if I remember right, I was reading this passage and I, and I realized, I had that moment of clarity, like every once in a while, probably after a large cup of coffee, moment of clarity that said, I am going to spend eternity in this new heaven and new earth. And I don't care how you, good you are or bad you are at math, eternity is a long time, right? Like you're going to be there a long time. And we had probably just gotten back from vacation because when you go on a vacation, let's say you're going to go to Europe, you study where you're going to go, you figure out what places to do, things to see, and you know all about this place you're going to go. And I realized as a believer who's going to spend all my life in, in, in eternity, I don't know diddly about the new heaven. I just don't know. And it kind of bugged me. I said, I should know more about this. So I trotted down to the local Christian bookstore. This is before Amazon Prime. Right, where you actually do that, you drive to a bookstore and go around there and look at books. And I go in there and I'm looking for books on heaven. I can't find any, uh, but that you know, I'm, I'm usually pretty clueless in bookstores. So I go up to the the guy at the front counter, happened to be the general manager, which was good. And he said, "Can I help you?" He was a really helpful guy, really nice guy. And I said, "Yeah, I'm looking for books on heaven." He goes, "Oh, great!" Jumps on his computer uh, and starts looking. And then a weird thing happened he starts getting a little red. And I see these little beads of sweat on his brow. And he's getting all embarrassed. And I said, what's wrong? He goes, we don't have any books on heaven. So I go, oh, well, do you have any books with chapters in them about heaven? And he goes, oh, I could, I could search for that too. So he searches for that. The sweat gets bigger. He gets red. He goes, we don't even have a chapter on heaven. And I look around. It's a huge bookstore. I go, this is a problem. And he said, yeah, we got to fix this. But he didn't have any books for me. So I went to my then pastor at Cedar Mill Bible Church, Carl Palmer, and said, Carl, do you have any resources on heaven? He goes, you know, I've been asked this before, and the person in our community with the heaven library happens to be Pat Palau. And I don't know if you know this, John, but Luis's Palau's wife, Pat, has all these old out-of-print books on heaven. And they're literally out of print. So I humbly go to Pat Palau and ask if I could borrow him. And she, she was so excited that somebody wanted to read about heaven. She said, sure, but I had a promise, promise, promise. They will return them, right? Because they're, they're out of print. You can't get them anymore. Well, fast forward today. You don't have to go through all that. Because in the year 2004, Randy Alcorn, good local Gresham pastor, theologian, wrote a book and the title's called Heaven. And that's one of the books on the reference sheet. I would highly, highly encourage you guys to get it. It comes in many forms. It's the big 500-page book, the abridged book, the kids' version book, the coffee table book. There's super lots of different ways you could read this book on heaven. But one of the biggest things we learn is when we talk about heaven as Christians, we say we die, we go to heaven. That's the current heaven, the present heaven. Randy Alcorn in his theological term says it's the intermediate heaven. But there's a future heaven that is created, the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem that is going to be after Jesus' second coming. So with that, as a background about heaven, and I wish we could, I, I would love to spend hours talking about heaven, uh, but we just don't have time. I do want to put up on the slide, though. You don't have to turn there if the slides are working. Revelation 21, verse 1 and 3, because this is a description of the new heaven. Revelation 21, verses 1 and 3. Then I, This is John, the disciple John, writing the book of Revelation, saying, I, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. See, there's a new heaven. 
It's different than the current present heaven, a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven, the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And this is the verse I want you to catch because we're going to jump off from here. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with him and they will be uh, their God. I see our hope and confidence in the future that verse one of Hebrews talks about is the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem where we're gonna spend eternity and what makes it heaven is the dwelling presence of God. When we read the Bible from cover to cover, there's a progression of God's dwelling place. We begin in Genesis chapter one, where God dwelled physically in the garden with his first two kids, Adam and Eve. But then sin separates the world and the dwelling place and Adam and Eve are separated. But God, by his grace, he gives us this wonderful rescue plan through the nation of Israel. And he tells them to build a tabernacle, which is a tent, and later a temple, which is a stone building version of the tabernacle. And key to those structures at the very, very center is the Holy of Holies, God's living presence, where once a year the high priest would go and enter into the presence of God in the Holy of Holies. But then Jesus comes, his first coming. Jesus comes. And we no longer have to go to temple anymore because he's the ultimate superior high priest. The temple is no more. And now if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Jesus, the presence of God is in me and in you by the power of the Holy Spirit. We figuratively become little temples of God because the holy presence of God is in you, believer. Wow. I mean, that's just mind boggling. But it's not the end of the story. It's still not the end of the story because there's a final phase of God's holy presence and that's the new heaven and the new earth. But it comes later. Jesus is coming back and he's going to look way different, way different. He's going to be on a horse as a warrior and he's going to conquer evil. He's going to put the end, an end to sin. And I don't know about you, but I'm excited about the time in the future, when there is no more sin, there is no more terrorist attacks, there are no more rapes, there are no more kids that get abused. There's no more lying, there's no more cheating, there's no more greed, there's no more pride, and on and on. We can't just fathom how fabulous that's gonna be when Jesus comes back. That is the story of the Bible. Now, if you're still hanging with me, I've tried to make two big points so far about faith. First one is that great faith trusts in the power and the authority of Jesus. And second, great faith looks forward to God's promised future, the new heaven and new earth. And to me, these two statements are my foundational bedrock of my faith. The power and authority of Jesus and the hope of the new heaven, the new earth and my life there. That's what keeps me going. But some of you are saying, that's great theory, Steve. But what about practical stuff? Like, what do I actually do today? What do I do this week to actually grow my faith? And that's where the Bible is so beautiful, because all we have to do is just keep reading. We finished in the last verse of chapter 11, and we're just going to read the next three verses of chapter 12. 
And let's do that. And we're going to pick out a few application points from those chapters. Hebrews 12, verse 1 to 3. And listen for some practical applications here. Verse 1. Therefore, summarizing all of chapter 11, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured the op- such opposition from sinners, so that you will grow, not grow weary and lose heart. There's not time to unpack that with great detail. We'll save that for a later day. But there's four easy observations that come out of this little three-verse passage. Four things that we can do this week to help us grow our faith. The first one is community. Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses. When I see your faith, it helps me. You guys know that? I mean, earlier this morning before the, the gathering uh, the people that were here, servants, we prayed and was very, very blessed that they, they prayed for me. And their faith, prayers, lifted me up and encouraged me. And I'll tell you, I need that. I need that. Simply put, I'm not strong enough to grow my faith on my own. Kenny Stone, uh, our pastor, one of our pastors, when I sent out these email notes, He said, Steve, remind the people that we are gifts to one another. Like, oh, that is so beautiful. We are gifts to one. You are a gift to me. And I hope I'm a gift to you occasionally, except when I talk about squirrels. But but we are a gift to one another on a small scale, on a big scale. On a small scale, uh, many of you know, if you've been in the news at all, that my brother, Mike Marshman, is the new Portland police chief. Tough job. Last week he was here. And my wife is in Uganda and his wife is in Uganda. So we kind of hung out together. And I witnessed the community coming around him saying, I'm with you. We know it's a hard job. It's a tough job, but I'm with you. And I saw his faith grow right in front of my eyes. This morning, I got a text from him and it's a sad text. Uh, He's actually on the way to the airport right now to pick up his wife, my wife and my daughter, because all three of them were in Uganda with a team of eight ladies. By the way, I don't think Uganda is ever going to be the same when three Marshman ladies go there for two weeks. <laughs> Talk about prayer needed. But this is a sad text. I'll just warn you. This is from my brother. He says, I know you're about to preach, but in Baton Rouge, seven officers have been shot with three feared deceased. Breaking news. And this is key. A sermon on faith is needed. Amen to that. I mean, today at lunch, at dinner, let's just take a moment to pray for all these communities as this crazy thing is happening in our world where, I mean, there's so many terrorist attacks, so many things happen. We can't keep track of them. You know, Baton Rouge now and Nice and Paris and San Bernardino and Orlando and there's others and it just goes on and on and on. But we need to have faith in the power of authority of Jesus because one day he's coming back and there will be no more terrorist attacks. There will be no more police officers being shot trying to do their job. All right, second thing, obedience, obedience. The reality is sin entangles us. We see that. We see that in our community. We see that in ourselves. 
So how do we deal with sin in ourselves? We throw it off is what Hebrews says. We throw it off. Whatever's getting in the way of your faith growth, get rid of it. We need to treat sin like a cancer. How do we treat cancer? You radiate it, you hit it with chemo, and you surgically cut it out. Whatever it takes, we get rid of sin because that's what's keeping us from growing in our faith. Third thing we see here is perseverance. Keep moving. Faith, my friends, is not idle. I've talked to several people about faith these last couple of weeks, and every single person I talk to agrees with the fact that your faith is either growing or it's shrinking. There's no way to stay status quo flat. It's either growing or shrinking. So you got to keep moving. I got this new polar watch. It's kind of like a Fitbit. And mostly I like it, but it's occasionally kind of annoying because if you sit around, it beeps at you and it literally says on the screen, it's time to move. I'm <laughs> like, the fact that I did a 40-mile bike ride that morning, it doesn't care. That's in the past. Now it's time to move. Get off your butt. And that's the way faith is. We need to move and we just can't stay idle. It's something that we have to really actually go for. And the last one is consider him who endured such opposition for sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Be encouraged. We consider what Jesus went through. Man, no matter how tough of a week we've had, it's nothing like the week Jesus had when he went to the cross. And he still says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you my rest. He says, I will always be with you, even to the end of the age, which is Jesus saying, I'm going to be with you, even though I'm not physically in bodily form or worth. I'm with you to the end of the age, which, oh, by the way, is when I'm coming back to put, the en- put an end to all evil and suffering and sin. He's winning. He's going to be victorious. So don't lose heart. He has this perfect new heaven and new earth prepared for us. And profoundly, and this blows my mind what I'm about to say, God rewards faithfulness. He rewards our faithfulness. We don't deserve it, but he rewards us anyway. Remember what Paul said towards the end of his life. The quote, You don't need to turn there out of 2 Timothy. Famous quote, Paul says this, I have fought the good fight. He's at the end of his life. I have fought, past tense, the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is in store for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day, the new heaven and new earth day. And not only to me, but also to all who are, have longed for his appearing. And we're going to end with that today. Are you longing for his appearing? Are you longing for the day that Jesus comes back? Let me put it this way. Do you daydream about heaven? Notice I waited to the end of the message to bring that up, right? I didn't want you daydreaming in the middle of the message. But now as we go to worship and communion, it's okay to daydream about heaven. What do I mean by that? Well, you don't want to just daydream little silly facts from a fact of the Bible, daydream. If you go get the book on heaven by Randy uh, Alcorn, you'll find some things to daydream about. Here's a couple that I have daydreamed about. In Revelation, the New Jerusalem is described as a three-dimensional city, 1,400 miles on all three sides, a perfect 1,400-mile cube. It's huge. It's like half the size of the United States, plus it's vertical. 
So I daydream about that and I go, hmm, either there's gonna be gigantic elevators in heaven or we might be able to fly. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but it's based on some evidence and it's conjecture and it's daydream. But daydreaming about good things is a good thing for our faith. Just like you daydream about your next vacation. If you're engaged to be married, you daydream about your marriage day. It's good to daydream about good things. And I would encourage us to do that. Here's another daydream that came to me and I have no idea this is accurate, but it's an interesting thought anyway. I see evidence in in the Bible that we're going to have new bodies in the new heaven and they're going to be fixed. My three knee surgeries won't hurt me anymore and our bodies will be recreated, made new. But we also have evidence of an interesting thing about Jesus. When he rose from the dead, he still had the holes in his hand and he still had the hole in his side from his death when he died on the cross. And there's a chance, I don't know if this is a true, but there's a chance that of all the people in heaven, the only one in heaven with a scarred body will be Jesus as the lamb slain for us. That's possibility. I don't know if that's true, but daydream thoughts about heaven based on facts from the Bible. In a minute, we're gonna go to communion and I wanna ask you to do this. In addition to daydream about the new heaven, the new earth, how wonderful it's going to be, and we'll meet and spend time hanging out with Jesus. Also think back to the beginning of this message, the power and authority of Jesus Christ. The one who could heal, the one who could walk on water, the one who could calm winds and waves. That's the savior that we serve and that's the one we worship. So as we go to communion, as we go to worship, think about those things, meditate on those things and make a decision this week to keep the faith.